Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. I am very excited about today's episode. I feel it's going to be an epic one, so get ready. Uh, My guest today, someone I've wanted to interview for a while, someone I've had a tremendous amount of respect for. She's a globally acclaimed therapist, best-selling author, award-winning speaker. I've had the pleasure of seeing her speak and it was very, very uh, inspiring and insightful. She's the founder of Rapid Transformational Therapy, which we're going to be getting into, and author of Tell Tell Yourself uh, a Better Lie. How's that for a title? I am enough and ultimate confidence. Welcome. Marissa Peer, welcome. Well, thank you so much. That was making me blush, the introduction. It was so lovely. Yes, great to have you. I've had so much respect for you, you know, over the years. And so uh, it was first a pleasure to be on your podcast and even bigger pleasure to have you on Soul Talk. So I'm always curious about people's origins, people's childhoods, and what in their childhoods maybe led them to doing what they're doing now. And if kind of exploring if there was a connection. So I'd love to hear just a little bit, and then I have a whole bunch of questions for you. I'd love to hear just a little oh. bit about your childhood. Was there anything, like, what was that like? Did it prepare you for what you're doing? Were yeah. your parents, you know, therapists? Like, was there a specific moment that triggered something that motivated you onto the path? Tell me, tell me a bit. You know, my parents were both great people, wonderful people, but not very good at meeting my needs. And I realized as a therapist that when you don't meet your children's needs, they do two things. They give up the need forever or they give it to someone else. And so my dad was an amazing man. He was a very eminent principal, but like many people in his field, he was so good at looking after other people's kids, but not really invested in his home life, which was very unhappy. So my parents were very unhappily married. And the biggest influence that gave to me was I'd watch my father every day get up and go to a job that he just loved, that fulfilled him and gave him everything. And watch my mother just be miserable. And I always thought, hmm, you need to have a really engrossing career. And it's never because if it goes wrong, it was so that when it goes wrong, it doesn't hurt. And that was what I saw in my life, my parents miserable together. But my father had something that cushioned him, which was a very rewarding career that was gave him meaning and meaning and purpose. My mother didn't know anything. And so I always wanted a career that gave me meaning and purpose. And my father got meaning and purpose from helping people. Making a difference was everything to him. Mm. And he was so invested in children. And so that gave me the interest in also helping people, but also understanding, understanding what made children tick. Why do people turn up in my office 30 years later? what goes wrong in their childhood. I think my father was my first teacher and a very good one too. Mm -hmm. Can you just share like, what is, okay, before I continue with a bit of your journey, 
what can you share to parents about how they can raise kids in a healthy way to meet their needs without spoiling them? Yeah. Well, you know, all your kids ever want is for you to be present with them. I remember when I was writing my first book, I said, my daughter, I'm writing this for you and I'm writing it for us so we can have, she goes, mommy, I don't don't want any of that. Mm. I just want you to be with me because that's what they want. They want you to be present with them. Like my grand, Mm. bless her heart, we would pick berries and make jam and stuff that didn't cost any money. And they were my happiest memories, going to car boot sales with my grandmother and buying like secondhand comics. But my parents didn't do any of that. Um, they would take us on holiday to the south of France, but that wasn't it. You know, I realized that children need you to be there with them because your job as a parent is to really raise kids with very healthy self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy not to do that. It's very easy to be so interested in the piano or the mandarin or the organic broccoli. Right. Right. Forget that, that none of that matters. If you haven't got kids with healthy self-esteem, then sadly, you really haven't done your job. And I was a single parent and I, I failed on many, many counts of mm. being present with my daughter and indeed growing herself for because I was so busy trying to give her this great life, private school, lovely holidays. But I can see now how much of it I got wrong. Like I would, mm. I always had all pairs and they would do all the cooking, but I realized later that she wanted me to cook with her. Like I cooked with my grand. Mm. It's, it's not good enough to have, oh, well, your pair will do that. The nanny will do that. They want you to do it. So because I was a single parent and I had to make money to pay for everything, it's very easy for me to pay someone else to do all the stuff like laundry and tidying mm. up. But I really should have done the cooking myself because that's so important with children wow. to cook with mum. And I wow. can see that my daughter is a massive foodie and I'm really not. Mm. And I think she became like that because I just wasn't mm. interested enough in doing stuff that was really important to her. Wow. Wow. So in terms of the self-esteem part, developing the self-esteem with your kids, can you share some other, so there's the presence, just being with them. Are there any other things that parents can consciously do to develop well, that self-esteem, yeah. to infuse that into them? Sure. You know, one of the things you have to do with children is find out what they're good at and don't do that terrible thing of making them good at everything. I was doing, giving a talk recently and a guy in the audience put his hand and said, hey, how can I make my kid good at everything? I said, are you? He said, what? I said, good at everything. He said, no. I said, well, there's your answer. You can't make <laughs> your kid be good at everything when you're not. And by the way, if you try to make your kid good at everything, it's just not possible. An arty kid can't always be good at Science, the scientific kid can't be good at our sporty kids, you know, these different parts of their brain, and you're supposed to be a master of one thing. You know, that it's much better to be good at one thing. And I think schools do so much badness to children by trying to make them good at everything instead of saying, Well, you're gifted at IT mm-hmm. and you're gifted at languages and you're gifted at science, and that's your gift. And that's one of the things my father did. He was way ahead of his time. You only had to go to the lessons in his school that you liked. You didn't have to go to any wow. school that you liked. Because he knew that if you went to the lessons you liked, that was what you were good at. Kids who are good at maths loved maths. Kids like me that hated maths never went to maths. So I went to English and art and psychology because that was my passion. 
And I notice now in Finland, the whole school system does that. You only go to lessons you want to go to. Really? Wow. And from it making you a better, it makes you a better student because you're following your passion. You're following what you're meant to be good at. And it's pointless making children who hate art go to art. Mm. It's pointless making children who hate languages try and learn Latin because what, what, unless you're going to be a doctor, what's the good of that? And so mm-hmm. I think schools... The other thing they do terribly wrong is they focus on achievement, not effort. And as a parent, I think you should reward effort and not achievement. So if your kids spend ages on a project and the end result is terrible, reward them for how long they spent doing it because that's what, that's what they learn in life. And then the other thing we do, which we, we do it with a good intention, is we say to our kid, okay, you've got to earn money. Mm. You've got to earn money, so you've got to, take out the trash or wash the dishes or mow the lawn. And what you're teaching them is do something you hate to get some money together. And that's actually a great thing for children. It should be, let's find you something you love to do. You love cooking. You can cook. You're really good at filing or art or so you've got to try and not do that mistake of making them mow the lawn to get money or wash (laughs) up or clean the house because They just learn then, oh, that's how you make money. You do something you hate. When actually the truth is, if you do what you love and love what you do, it's very hard not to be a success at it. Mm -hmm. I love that. So that's a real perspective. Is there any value? Is there any value from what you've seen in having a kid or having someone, let's say, you know, do something that maybe they don't like to develop that, self-esteem to develop that and not self self-discipline right to cultivate yeah. the, the self because sometimes you know in life you got to do shit you don't really enjoy yeah. right? at and least that, that's, that's what i think and, and that's and, the mark of all successful people they do what they do not want to do to get to where they want to be so people who succeed like olympic athlete they're going to yeah. 4 a.m scrape the ice off their car drive to the track and run in the snow if they mm-hmm. want a medal but they're doing that for a gain and so you are right mm. People who succeed will do what they do not want to do to get to where they want to be. People who fail will give up their goal before they do what they don't want to do. The problem is having to do what you don't want to do every day. You know, I've worked with a lot of women who can't get pregnant, and it's so interesting that when we go back to what their block is, because they usually have what's called unexplained infertility, which means everything works great, but we just can't explain it. And they often go back to something interesting, having to raise their little brothers and sisters. I'm the eldest wow. kid. No sleepovers. No, I've got to come home and look after these kids. And I hate it. And then when it's mm. time to get pregnant, the mind goes, oh, no, 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 you don't like that. That's a sacrifice. And that's an interesting lesson in what having to do what you don't want to do does to you long term. Mm. And so many kids who see their dad going, oh, this job's killing me or, this is the price you pay you know, for being self-employed. There's no holidays. I've got an mm. answer. And then they pick up a thought, which is that place called work is killing you. That thing called a job is making you ill. I don't want that. So many people who have what's called a destructive streak or self-sabotage are often colored by this experience of watching their parents say, this job will be the death of me. Mm. So they have an unconscious fear of having a career that's engrossing, they'd rather unconsciously be a gardener because they, they're so scared of the pressure. So we really do learn what we live. 
And we really have to stop and think, you know, what are we, what are we telling our children? You know, years and years ago, it was a very strange thing. I was out um, with a friend and my daughter, he was a guy, he was just, and, and someone I knew, and a mother I knew from the school came in with her little girl. And she came and joined us in this cafe and we had something to eat. When we were leaving, she got out of car, little girl, her little girl said, why has my mummy got to pay for this lunch when I'm with a man? And I thought, wow, what a strange thing. This little girl said, why is my mummy paying when there's a man here? So who knows what went on in that house for her to believe that men pay for everything? What a disservice to a little girl to hear that, oh, men pay for everything. You don't have to pay. Whereas it's really important to say, baby, you can do everything yourself. You know, when your kids are getting dressed, they go, I can do it. I can do my shoes. I can do it myself because it, they love it. I can feed myself. And they really love that. And you should be feeding on that. You can do anything. You can be anything. You can go in a situation you can be anything in the world if you believe in yourself and work hard. Because that's true. But... It's so funny how that little girl said, why has my mommy got to pay when there's a man here? You've got to be very careful what you tell your children because they don't just learn it, they start to live it. Yeah, yeah, so true. How do we identify, um, you talked about unconscious beliefs, but if our beliefs are unconscious and we're not aware, how do we even begin to identify them if we're not even aware that we have them? You know, that's a great question because we are aware of them. We just don't know where they come from. So often we'll think thoughts like, oh, I'm just messed up or I'm always late or everything I do doesn't work out. So let's, let's go to the I'm always late one. I'm always late. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm just always late. So with my clients, whether they've got an addiction or a bad behavior, I always start from, hey, what's good about it? What do you mean? Well, what's good about being late? Nothing. But if there was one thing that could be good about it, that, well, I get lots of attention. Yeah, of course you do. When you walk into the theater late, everyone turns around and looks at you. <laughs> when you go, and everyone has to stand up. I was actually watching Ricky Gervais last week, who came in, and everyone has to stand up and let them in. And oh, you get a lot nice. of attention when you're late. So if you say to an addict, you know, it's a silly question. Well, what's good about being an addict? Nothing. No. Think again. What? could be good about being an alcoholic. And they'll go, well, now you ask me that, it consoles me. I have certainty. If I go home on a Friday night and start drinking at six o'clock, I don't have to cope with being all on my own on the weekend because I'm now drunk. So I get comfort. I get consolation. I get security and certainty. And I can blame everything. Well, I don't have a wife because who's going to put up with a drunk like me? So when you can ask some questions, you know, the word cure comes from the word curious. Mm. So great therapists and great doctors are curious and go, well, when did this happen? What was going on when it happened? You know, I worked with somebody once who became very obese at 11. And I said, well, what happened at 11? I don't know. I said, but you weren't obese at two or four. What happened at 11? And then she began to describe changing school and her mother didn't drive her to school anymore. And indeed, her mother wasn't at home. And she had to go to a relative's house every day after school. And then her mother would pick her up after work because it was like a half an hour drive. And he would systematically molest her, you know, put his hand up her skirt, grope her. And she got fatter and fatter because that's what was good about it. 
she was trying to repel him. And when that didn't work enough, she then got this contact dermatitis. When you touched her skin, it would start shedding. And that wow. did work. Wow. Because when that happened, he started to leave her alone. It kind of repelled him. But often we don't really make the connection. Mm -hmm. what, what was going on then? How was I feeling? Because, you know, if you say something like, oh, I'd give anything for a week in bed. I did that last week. I was so busy. I was thinking, oh, I can't wait to have one day with nothing to do. <laughs> and the next day I woke up and I'd lost my voice. And I thought, yeah, I asked for that, didn't I? <laughs> I said I wanted a day with nothing to do. And if often when we do that, we end up with a cold or we say, oh, I'm dreading next Wednesday. I don't want to go. And when next Wednesday comes around, we either have the flu or diarrhea or an upset stomach and we can't go because our mind is a genie and our wish is its command. And if only we knew to make better suggestions because your mind's job is to do what it thinks you want. And your job, which is actually a great job, is to let it know clearly you want attention. No, you don't want it. You want positive you want love, but what kind of love and with who and for how long you want money, but how much money and what for? You know, if you say you want attention, you can end up with explosive gas. You'll get lots of attention, but that's not what you want at all. So, so many of our problems come from you not know, understanding our mind's job is to listen to what we're telling and we want and to give it to us. And we say, well, I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be let down. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want to be disappointed. Now we start living half a life because we've told our mind that. When in fact, we should be saying, I want to try everything. And even if it doesn't work out, I want to feel great that I tried. Like, you know, that like, mm. saying it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Mm. But when you say, oh, I'd die if I got ghosted again, it would kill me to have another miscarriage. If I had one more IVF that didn't work, it would be the end of the world. Our mind is now very busy making sure that what we say we couldn't cope with doesn't happen. When you say no. I can cope with everything. I've got phenomenal coping skills. Mm. And you really can cope with everything. So we've got to be careful, what, you know, telling yourself a better yeah. lie because the mind doesn't know if it's true or false. What about, yeah, it's fascinating. I want to dig deeper into that. So let's say someone listening in, and they're like, okay, Marissa, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in LA. I want to be this rock musician. And I believe it. I feel it, I'm, I'm taking the actions, traveling everywhere, doing everything, I'm putting myself out there. And I see Justin Bieber who blew up and he's less, you know, he's not as talented as I am. Or, you know, you see so many, I speak to someone who, yeah. who was at the American Idol auditions and he was like, there were like 300,000, know, 30,000 people at this audition and only there's only one American Idol. And so what is the difference between those 30,000 people? Is it, is it just that one person truly believed it and the others had subconscious beliefs that they weren't? Is it destiny? Like, do you know what I'm saying? What well, is the... I think in something like in the music business, it's talent, but it's also tremendous luck. I mean, it, it isn't really the most talented person that wins. Yes. We all know that. There's so many talented people who never make it. You know, you have to be a combination of like that Korean band. I've forgotten their name. Yeah, yeah, BTS. The biggest band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the biggest band, boy band now. You know, you've got to put something together, like um, One Direction, who were all, they all mm. auditioned for X Factor separately, but Simon Cowell made a group. And it's like, 
Mm. You know, are you relevant? Are you young? Are you gorgeous? Are you relevant? Can you sing? Have you got talent? And the word of talent is not very fair at all. Belief without talent will often take you way further than talent without belief. Mm. You know, there are a lot of talented people with no belief, a lot of people with great belief and no talent. We see that in reality TV, how they can make a career. I mean, look at, I'm not being mean to but look at Kim Kardashian. I mean, <laughs> is that talent? Is that belief? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually sheer determination huh. and self-belief, much more than talent. I mean, that was just a drive, a determination, a commitment. Yeah. You know, when Celine Dion sent her first cassette table to Sony and then Corden said, what do you think? This we don't like it. She said, you haven't played it. If you heard my voice, you would never say you don't like wow. it. And they got it out of the bin and played it because that something in her voice, that certainty of, hang on a minute, Mm. you haven't played it. So it's the bounce back factor is huge if you want to go into movies and and the, and the world of the music because you've got to be able to take a lot of rejection. You know, Muhammad Ali said, I told myself I was the greatest way before I was, but something amazing happened. I became the greatest. So he said it, mm. but it isn't enough to say it. You've got to say it. You've got to have some talent and you've got to put in a lot of work. So if you do those three things, huge drive, talent, and a huge work ethic, you probably will make it. But if you want to be a rock star, you need to stop and say, why? You know, why do I want to be a rock star? Often the answer is surprising because everybody would like me. Oh, Mm -hmm. so that's what it is. You don't feel enough and you believe that being famous will make you good enough. But the truth is, that fame can damage what lots of my clients say, you know, is it, is it all these famous people you see that are damaged? Does fame damage you? I'm like, well, it's actually the opposite. Damaged people have such a need to be famous because they don't think they're enough and they have a belief if I'm famous, you're loving them. Look at Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Winehouse and Michael Hutchins and all those people that were damaged and became famous. And it didn't make it better. In fact, in many ways, it made it worse because before you're famous, you have a dream, I'm going to be famous and everybody will love me. And then when you become famous, you think, hmm, but do they really love me? Yes. This image. So you saw that when you saw Britney Spears, bless her, falling apart. So, yeah. you know, in the pursuit of fame, you really need to ask yourself, what do I want this for? Why do I want it so much? And can it really give me what I want? Everybody will love me. Well, they will, but then it doesn't often last very long. And then you become nobody again. And that can be very, very painful for people who need everyone to love them. And even if everybody loved you, what good would that do if you don't love yourself? I mean, everybody loved Judy Garland. It didn't do her any good. So you want to stop and think, okay, I'm pursuing this to feel worth it. But could I feel worth it without pursuing it? And is there any guarantee that pursuing would ever make me feel worth it? Mm. Probably not. I mean, look at that great DJ. I've forgotten his name. That amazing Avicii. Avicii. Yeah. I mean, wow. he never felt worth it. In fact, he said it was horrible. And most of my clients are rich and famous. will say the same thing. If I could have my life again, I'd be rich but not famous and I do not under any sense want my kids to be famous. I want them to be normal, nurses, doctors, mm-hmm. not famous. And you wonder, well, why do you not want your kids to be famous? And you know why, because 
it doesn't meet the need you thought it would meet. And even if it did, you know, you get voted the best actor. But then what happens next year or the year after when you don't? So you've you've entered a race with Mm. no finishing line ever. And you've entered a race to be perfect, which you can't win because you can't complete it. It doesn't have a finishing line. So how does someone who spawned a lot of different thoughts, I might combine two questions in one. How does someone who doesn't feel worthy, and they let's say they, okay, you don't have to achieve to feel worthy. Why not just feel worthy just because? And they're listening and they're saying, okay, Marissa, I, I get it, but I, I get it, but I don't feel it. I, yeah. I, I, I know I should, I'm enough. Okay, I'm a, but I don't feel it, but I understand I should, and it yeah. would be nice. And so how does someone connect that feeling inside authentically? So it's not just a, you know, affirmation overlay, right? And, and yeah. how do they change that belief of, I'm un- I don't feel worthy, I'm not worthy? Yeah, well, you know, the mind learns by repetition. And you start, I don't call them affirmations. I call mm-hmm. them statements of truth. So you start by going, I'm enough, I'm enough. Let's imagine every day you say, my four favorites. I matter, I'm significant, I'm enough, and I'm lovable. And you repeat them every day. But you also can you say them, can you say them again? Sure. I matter, I'm enough, I'm significant, and I'm lovable. Mm. Imagine every day you not only said those things, but you wrote them on your mirror, you wrote them on your fridge. And it's not enough to wonder for us all personally. You've got to stop and say it. You've got to state it and affirm it and embody it. And the thing is, you won't believe it. You go, yeah, but I'm not really enough because, come on, I don't mm-hmm. have my own home. i got a crappy little car and I work in a job I hate. But then you just have, yeah, that's true. You know, I don't have my own home. I don't have a great car. I don't have my job. I'm still enough. I still matter. I'm still significant. I'm still lovable. So you kind of add your objections in and you keep emphasizing. And eventually your mind, first of all, you run out of objections. Then your mind goes, oh, yeah. You know, you say that every day, so it must be true because the mind learns by repetition. And the mind doesn't care if what you tell it is good or bad or true or false. I mean, if you put your hand in front of your mouth right now, in fact, we can all do this. Put your hand in front of your mouth. Imagine you're holding a big, fat, juicy lemon. Just breathe in. Imagine you're smelling the most gorgeous, citrusy, lemony scent ever. And then open your mouth and squeeze those lemon drops into your mouth and shove that half a lemon in your mouth and start eating it, start sucking out the flesh, start biting into that Uh, lemon. uh, And your taste buds will start to swell and pucker to a thought. There's no lemon. Well, there is actually. It's in your imagination. But your mind doesn't know and it doesn't care if what you tell it is true or false, good or bad, helpful, or it just lets it in. So if you can tell yourself you're using a lemon and physically pump out saliva to a thought, mm-hmm. and of course you can tell yourself you're enough, you matter, you're significant, you're lovable. Because your mind will let it in. You're objecting to it. But if you keep going, you'll run out of objections. And that's the great thing to understand that you might as well tell yourself a better lie. Our greatest pain mm-hmm. is caused by the lie. I'm not enough. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not lovable. According to whom? Who said you're not lovable? Well, I don't conform to society's norms. A lot of people don't. 
I don't come from money. I don't, I'm not a perfect model. Yeah. You know, most people who have love aren't. I mean, (laughs) that's not important. It's important that you say it knowing that the mind will let it in. That you can choose to be negative or positive. It is a free will. But what you can't choose is what you do to yourself when you are negative. So you might as well be positive. You might as well start to say those things because I promise you, even if you doubt it, Mm. it will sink into your mind like lotion on dry skin. Mm. And just like lotion nourishes dry, dry skin, good statements of truth nourish a dry soul. So... You have nothing to lose and everything to gain by just rather like Muhammad Ali who said, I'm the greatest, say I am lovable, I'm significant. And I promise you it works. I know it works because we've got many, many schools all over the world to have their children say that every day. We've got it in 600 schools in the UK. We've got it in about 600 schools in America. We have this five-day challenge where it's the I can't to I can. And by the way, if anybody listening is working in, with children in any way, little league or schools will give you that. It's completely free. Mm. But all the schools that do is say, you know, what's amazing is these children don't just get better academically. They, they get better socially. Their self-esteem goes up. Bullying just seems to fade away when we join this, I matter, I'm significant, I'm enough. And what we're doing with the children is shutting down the inner critic and installing a cheerleader that only knows how to cheer for you and believe in you. And it's been extraordinary to see these children talking about their mental health and talking about this cheerleader like it's a real person. They make me feel good about myself. And so it's so important with children to give them a sense of self, to say, I know what my friend doesn't like me. Well, that's a shame. Do you like you? Yeah. Why do you like you? Well, I'm kind. I'm funny. Yeah, that's right. You are. Mm. And so a great parent, you need to kind of guide your children. Mm. What do you think you're good at? What, are you, what is great about you? What, what's special about you? And so don't tell them. Let them tell you, I'm, I'm really good at art. I'm very good with my cats. I'm very good with my brother or sister. I'm, I, I like my friends think I'm really funny or smart or I help them. And so that's how you raise their self. You don't tell them what they're good at. You let them tell you, and then you layer it and layer it so they have a sense of who they are in the world and what they can offer the world and what the world can offer them back. God, I have so many, like, I just want, you're bringing up the the kid thing again. Like, you mentioned cooking for your daughter, right, and and Mm -hmm. being there for her. And so how would you have done it differently? Because let's say you would have cooked for her mm. and done the laundry with her and spent even more time. Yeah. Would you have been able to do your career at the same time? So, so like, if someone yeah, is I, wondering, but how, how do I how do I actually do that? I could certainly have done the cooking. You know, okay. I, I could certainly have ordered food and done the mm. cooking because I mm. did have enough time. You know, women okay. especially have this belief you can't do it all and something's got to give. But if I looked at my life now, a lot of the stuff I was doing, I could have thought, that's not important. Mm. What is she like? What makes her feel good? And I could have done that. But I see, I thought about what I needed the most, not what she needed the most. And that, that was wrong. And so I think we always think, well, something's got to give and you can't have it. Well, you can actually can have it. all. It's a bit of juggling. Mm. But I think the thing you have to do is it's a three-step process, which I didn't get then, but I do now. The first thing you have to do is, 
look at what does that look like? What would it look like if I cooked with my daughter and for my daughter every day? What would that really have looked like? It would look like great pleasure for her. And the second thing is what would that involve? It involves going out to the store and buying food, which I found very boring, you know, going shopping for all this stuff, which I didn't really like doing. Mm -hmm. But then if I'd looked more at what it meant, I would have done it because anything you want requires you, you want a six pack. What does that look like? It looks like 600 sit-ups a day. Are you prepared to do that? No, but <laughs> you don't want a six pack. If you really want one, you know what it looks like and you're prepared to do it, you can have it. So you've got to know what it looks like, really look and be prepared to do it. And I didn't really know what it looked like. I didn't look at it enough. And if I'd looked at it enough, I would have, I would have made that an absolute priority. But I didn't. But, you know, as you yeah. say, I can't beat myself with that because I got a lot of stuff right. But if I could go back now, I would do a lot of things differently. Mm. I think we all, I think every parent would say, oh, I should have done this and I wish I'd done that. And, you know, when we know better, we do better. That's why we're often such great grandparents. My mum wasn't a great mum. But I saw her with my daughter and I thought, wow, mm. that's the mum she could have been. If she wasn't so unhappily married and so unfulfilled, she was an amazing grandmother, kind, patient, mm. loving, supportive. And it was like, I didn't look at that and feel jealous. I looked at it and thought, oh, I see. You could have been like that with me, but you were so unhappy. And so often we, have, we become amazing grandparents because mm -hmm. we have the time, we have the patience, we have the wisdom. We just don't have when we're in a place where we're so busy working and trying to be everything to everyone. I don't know, you yes. come from a multicultural. Your your mother was Japanese. Japanese, yeah. And you know, there's one there was one thing. My mother was far from perfect because she had some of her own her own stuff. But there was one thing that she really gave me, which was that feeling of unconditional love. Yeah. And and when she was with me, she was with me. And I always knew that she would support me, and I always knew that she loved me. Like I never doubted that. You know, yeah. and we had some really special moments together. Like when I think of my moments with my mother, it's just in the park. She would take me to judo practice. She would make the sandwich. It was those basic things. But I, now thinking back, it provided a real inner foundation for me. Yeah. Yeah. As I say to my daughter, listen, if you were in jail, I'd be visiting you every day. There's nothing you could do that would stop mm. me loving. And I always say to you, you know, I will never punish you for telling the truth. If you tell me the truth, you will never, ever be punished. Because I wanted to come home and say, Mom, I had sex with some idiot or my friend asked me to take drugs. And But you see, with, with teenagers, you have to let them know up front, tell me the truth. Even if it's horrifying, I won't punish you. And then they feel safe. And so, so many kids I met would run away from home because they couldn't tell their parents the truth because of the fear. But if you can take that fear away, I won't like it, but I will stand by you no matter mm. what, and I will not punish you. Then that really helps your child know that they can come to you and tell you stuff that makes your eyes stand out on stalks. I used to have every kid in that neighborhood come to my house because I was really stuck to that. M mustn't judge, must listen with an... I, I think my daughter told me things sometimes just to see... <laughs> how hard you could go but I never judge I go wow yeah. well, that, okay well don't do that again if it makes you feel really bad or yeah. what, what made you think of that but um, you really got to be a safe, safe place for your kids to come back to you know 
whenever you hear of children trying to take their lives, it's always because somebody made them wrong or because they didn't have it. They didn't feel understood. They felt they had no one to listen to them. So I've watched a lot of suicidal children. I think that's what made me say to my daughter very early, you can tell me anything and I'll always be behind you. Even if you do something wrong, I won't like it, but I'll never disown you. In, In your 30 years, maybe plus now of working with people <clears throat> intensely, therapeutically. What have you seen in the cases of maybe where people just didn't want to change? They just 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 held on and and I'm just curious like in in maybe your toughest cases that they just hadn't changed for years, they didn't want to change, or people that Maybe you don't even know, but you know of that just stay stuck. And what, why is that? And how, how did you help those clients of yours that were stuck for years break through? I don't see people that don't want to change. I see people who believe that change is impossible or too hard. I really want to mm. find love, but, you know, who's going to want me? I've got three got kids. It and cellulite and every person I've been with has dumped me or I really want to lose weight but you know every diet I've been on has failed me in fact I've just got a new program called Dietless Life and everyone who's on it I've got a thousand members I just started it last week and they'll say that I've tried everything nothing wants to go but you haven't you tried mm-hmm. one thing called dieting over and over again and by the way that doesn't work it lowers your resting metabolic rate it messes up everything. So you haven't tried everything. You've tried <laughs> one thing. You've been lied to. You've been try this diet, or this is the last diet. This is an amazing diet. They're, they're all rubbish. They're all terrible. You should never, ever diet. It's the worst thing you can do because 98% of diets fail. So clients don't say, I don't want to change. They say, I've tried to change. I was promised change. I thought if I got breast implants or had things yeah. snipped in or snipped out, I would find love. I thought if I mm. acquired some stuff, I would find love, but I didn't find love. I, I tried all these things. But again, you've only tried one thing, which is to change the exterior. You only have to do one thing to find love, and that one thing is to believe you're lovable. Have you tried that? No. Mm. No, Well, that, and, and nobody does because no one tells you that. You've got to sit at home and say, I'm lovable, I'm lovable, I'm so lovable, I'm totally lovable, I radiate love. Even if you don't believe it, you've got to keep saying it because eventually your words shape your reality. And when you change your words, you change your reality. Mm. So I see a lot of people who say, I've tried all these things and it didn't work. But that's because they've tried the wrong things. But And, you know, we're taught, oh, it's so hard to change. Well, it's yes. just the way I am. And I think we've been lied to so much about how easy change is. You know, you get the chance to change twice every day. Every day you get the chance to change how you think, which in turn will change how you feel. You know, when I was doing my very first Dietless Life call last week. I was talking about how we eat the pictures, right? You can just change the picture. You know, vegans are like, oh, my God, it's so hard to not eat bacon. Oh, my God, it's so difficult <laughs> resisting chicken. You know, every day after that, they go, no, I can't eat anything that's lived. They, the picture is so clear. So I was doing this with my group, and this week they're reporting amazing changes because they were coming at it differently because the dieting industry says, okay, 
punish those pounds, do a punishing workout, go on a strict diet, mm. have good days. And what they're saying is, let's come at it from self-hatred. Right. Let's teach you how to hate your body, be disgusted by it, and abuse yourself by living on shakes and soups mm. and bars of stuff. But if you come at it from love, which is what I'm doing, you know, the only way to have a body you love is to love the body you have so much. Mm. You just come at it with respect. You think, oh, I love my body. Do I really want to donut for breakfast? Is that loving? Mm. Like, you know, I need to drink water because it's a loving thing to do for my body. I'd actually rather have a cup of coffee, but I need to give my body water. Mm. And so, you know, this whole thing about how the diets of your years have been abusing people and making them hate themselves, and I've come at it differently, and it's it's so empowering to see it working even in week one because it doesn't say okay go on another diet go to the gym it says why not look at the only body you're ever going to have and treat it with a bit of love and respect and as weird as that sounds it really really works so I think most people just keep you know doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result as the definition of madness. But we're told that, go on another date, mm -hmm. join another dating site, apply for another job, go on another diet. Don't do the same thing. Look at what you're doing and come at it differently. And then it becomes so easy, so easy when you think, okay, you know, again, I said, what's great about eating badly? Nothing, no, but what's good? Well... I can lose myself in a bag of potato chips. I can numb myself out with a tub of ice cream. Ben and Jerry's are always there when I get home and they keep me company. So when you, you know, like the great Wayne does, when you, look, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So take a look at you with fresh eyes. Don't look at yourself with criticism. Look at yourself with compassion. Be curious. Because when you're curious about you, you find the cure to you. Okay, I, I binge out on cake every day. Why is that? Well, my mum made me cake. Every Saturday we made cake in the kitchen and I felt so loved and I'm trying to find love in the cake. But actually, even though my mum's dead, she's not in a cake. I can't <laughs> find my mum's love in a cake. I'm going to stop doing that because that's disrespectful to her. She loved me in many more ways than making me a cake. My grand you know, would take me to those car boot sales and buy me comics and chocolate. And whenever I was sad, magazines and chocolate, that's exactly where I went because yeah. I, I could see I was trying to keep it alive. My yeah. grandmother was such a wonderful woman that she loved me so much more than cakes and chocolate, but mm. it's the memory. It's, it's an, so when you have a child and an authority figure, you form an imprint, it can be good or bad. I'm scared of cats, or this is dangerous, or oh, a magazine and a cupcake mm -hmm. just solves all life's problems like that. Because when you're seven, it does. Mm -hmm. When you're a baby and your mom picks you up and gives you some creamy, fatty stuff, it solves every problem. You get <laughs> attention, you get connection. In fact, you know, I was saying at the beginning, the needs we have as a child, we need to be connected, loved, and safe and secure and significant. And when you're holding your baby and giving it breast milk or formula, they do indeed feel safe, secure, connected, and significant. And it's not really surprising that 
as adults who go, oh, I'm having a bad day. I, I need something milky. And no one says I'm having such a bad day. I think I'm going to have some grated carrot. Pizza, <laughs> hot chocolate. Yeah. Anything that has that imprint of the mm. child, the fat mm. and the sugar. And, you know, there is no food in nature that's half fat and half sugar, nothing. There's sugary food like mangoes and fatty food like nuts, but there's no combination. The only food that's half fat and half sugar is breast milk, human milk, or any animal's milk. Mm. And all food companies keep recreating that, the bliss point, because they understand your wiring. You go back to what something means. Oh, my God, this cereal and milk, this ice cream, this hot chocolate with marshmallows. My, my, it's, I'm regressing back to the time when it may, met all my needs, and I think it still will. And even though we know it won't, that's the mind. It says, oh, well, it worked once 50 years ago. Maybe it'll work now. Even though we know it doesn't work, we still keep doing it. Wow, got it. So much there. Um, if I ask my final question, it's a really fascinating, fascinating conversation. I just want to talk about maybe uh, money blocks and yeah. what you can share on that for those that might be struggling with breaking the ceiling on money and finances, those that might either be broke or those that might feel like, yeah, I'm doing okay, but I just, I can't get to that next level. Mm. And, 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 and I'm studying and I'm doing the right things and I'm, you know, which that poor that Kiyosaki, this, that, I'm affirming, but shit's not happening. What, what, well, you what, know, what, 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 it's what amazing, that, amazing that we learn most of our beliefs that money before we're five. Like my brother went to a private school and I went to a state school. And when I came home, my homework would say something like, you have four apples and you give two away. How many you got left with two? But my brother's home would say, you own eight businesses. You <laughs> three. How many you got left? Five. But you see, I gave away half my equity. I gave my apples away. My brother's homework said you sell these three. And, it, and even at, at that age you were learning about acquisitions and you own this and you invest in that and I was learning about apples and bananas and oranges and so that was very interesting that at a very young age you need to teach your children and that's the same thing when they want something I, I want this toy and you go okay well what could you do to get they're going to have to get 100 stars and then you can have the toy and again try not to have them empty the dishwasher as well they break all your cups but Try to give them something they like, even if that can be quite hard, or something they enjoy. They're learning, oh, right, I can get that. You see, when you say things to kids like, well, we can't find the money. I don't know where the money is coming from. That's very confusing because no one says, I want something, I'll go and find the money. You know, what mm -hmm. you do is, I want something, I'm going to earn the money, I'm going to monetize a gift, I'm going to earn the money. And so, Every time we use language like, oh, we can't find the money. There isn't enough money. I don't know where it's coming from. It's very confusing to children. But when you teach them very early, well, we can monetize the skill. You know, you're really good at this. So let's see if we can monetize that. You're really good at drawing. So we're going to help you draw some little stickers. Or you're really good. Could you do a little bit of filing? I used to let my other girl pretend she was my secretary. Mm -hmm. And she didn't really do much, but she believed that she was helping me immensely and I'd give her some money. I remember when my builders came one day and they were so enchanted. She was wheeling a little wheeler up and down. And when I paid them, they gave her a little pay packet and she was just filled. But she really felt. And we took it to the bank and that was the funniest mm -hmm. thing because she was, the woman said, where did you, I said, tell where you got the money from. And she said, um, 
oh, I've been helping the builders. We're building an extension and I've been helping them and I got paid. And the woman said, you're getting paid next week. I think so if the fucking bricks turn up, which was <laughs> for sure. But that's what happens when she hung out with builders. But aside from the bricks, maybe I should say bloody bricks. In <laughs> but I love that because even at five, she formed a belief, I can monetize something. Mm. So with money blocks, it comes from me. Did you see your dad hating his job, going to work, saying, I can't make enough money. I'm killing myself here just to get by. Because you learn what you live. And the days of, you know, you went to a private school, you're lucky. You know, there are so many people now because of the internet who didn't go to us who are learning and are doing amazing stuff, teaching themselves. And so really have a look at what you learn. My grand, you say, you know, never talk about money, never talk about how much anything earned. It was a great shame to discuss money. And now it's not like that anymore. So, you know, look at, do you feel uncomfortable asking for money? When people say, how much is it? Do you go, oh, it's, um, you know, you got to get really used to saying, this is, this is the investment to work with me. And it's worth every penny. You got to make your peace with money. Isn't a dirty word. And if you want to make a lot of money, one of the things that really helps is to think about how many people can you help with money? Like, for instance, with my company, when we became very successful, we made all these free products for schools. We had to, you know, film the product. We had to make these cheerleaders for the schools and pay for them ourselves. And I couldn't have done that if I didn't have money behind me. So when you think, oh, if I have money, you have money. If I have money, you benefit from it. Then you can change. You have to really look at your money blocks. What do I believe about money? Well, when you have money, you never know who your friends are. Well, that's not a good belief. Oh, I can't keep money. It just slips through my fingers. I was amazed. I worked on a show years ago with lottery winners who'd gone completely broke in three wow. years. 70% of lottery winners are bankrupt in my three God. years. 70. Wow. 70%. And some of them are suicidal too. Because you don't really fix money problems. With money, you think you do. But imagine you've got a kid with money problems. You keep giving them money, you'll realize, oh, I'm not fixing it. So if you've never had money and you get a lot of money, because your beliefs about money are when you spend it until it's gone, that's what people who win the lottery do. They buy cars and houses and businesses, and they don't understand. Only people who keep the money are people who understand what is money? Is it investing? Are you comfortable investing? Have you got a financial advisor? And if you win the lottery, you're not used to money, you need to get a financial advisor really fast because it's so easy to get rid of it, to not respect it, to not be comfortable, to be uncomfortable talking about it. You know, one of the guys I worked with on that show said, if I went to a bar and I bought everybody a drink, they go, there you go, showing off again. But if I didn't, they go, what, we've got to pay for our own drinks? You just won the lottery. He said, I felt, then I left this little place where, and I, I moved where all the rich people and they didn't like me. And mm. actually I couldn't wait to get rid of it so I could go back where the money was a hindrance. And so you've got to really be comfortable with money. See it as something that is an energy because that's really what it is, it's an energy. And, you know, just like energy where you give and receive and with money, you know, if you're holding on to it too tightly, that doesn't work. If you're giving it all away, you're not respecting it, but you've got to really get comfortable with it and stop saying things like, 
Um, like what I find very useful is think of all the things you think about money. Money is the root of all evil. That's not true. Rich people have got no soul. Well, that's not true either. Where did you get that belief from? Who told you to? What did they know? And then make your own beliefs. Lots of rich people are really good people. Yeah. The Bible doesn't even say money. It says the pursuit of money above everything else is the root of all evil. But money itself isn't evil. You can do very good things with money, really good things with it. And you can change people's lives with money. So don't be scared of it. Be excited about it and decide you're going to have an abundance of it. But people have this, I call this threshold, they're almost scared of having too much Mm. because of how much it will change them. But I'm trying to lose the guy. Oh, gosh, I can hear his name in my head now. He still still lives in the same house and still has the same car. Warren Buffett? Yeah, Yeah. Warren Buffett. And, you know, I've met him many times and his kids, and he's the most normal, down-to-earth guy. Mm. So it doesn't have to change you at all. Mm. And it's not a bad thing. It's it's what you make of it. So if you have money issues and you keep losing it or you can't get it, you know, your mind will pretty much give you whatever you want. If you tell your mind what you really, really want, make it clear, and be absolutely determined to do whatever it takes, then you can have what you want. So if you haven't got it, you must have some blocks. If you go to marissapier.com, we've got some free audios. One of them is called Wealth Blocks, Money Blocks, Love Blocks, Health Blocks. They're all free. So you can take those and unblock your blocks. Love it. Love it. Uh, final question. Um, if you were just to reflect on your life, Marissa, everything you've been through, ups, downs, relationships, motherhood, successes, failures, um, where you are today, if you were to look at, let's say, the three most important life lessons you've learned that you could, dis- you shit a lot today, but that you could just distill into three bullet points that, let's say you could only pass these three mm-hmm. wisdoms on to the next generation that would evolve mm-hmm. your grandchildren and their grand, you know, the next generation mm-hmm. the most, what would the three lessons be that you would pass the first on? First of believe in yourself. Do not put your energy into making other people believe in you. We put 90% of our energy on to make other people change their opinion, mm-hmm. believe in yourself. Put all your energy into believing in you. When you believe in yourself, your life can change so dramatically. That would be number one. Powerful self-belief. Work at it and put the energy into you. Don't try to make some idiot boy or girl like you, like yourself. My second one would be, Sit down and think of the things you've been waiting your whole life to hear. What have you been waiting to hear? You're beautiful, you're smart, you're funny, you're kind, or you're the best kid in the world. Whatever it is you want to hear, say it yourself. Say it, state it, affirm it, embody it. You know, I, I mm-hmm. many years ago, as I started saying, I'm the favorite child. I absolutely was not. <laughs> I was definitely the third in the three. But when I said it, only for 10 days, it was amazing that it came true so fast that I thought, wow, I should have known that 20 years ago. <laughs> wow. so, you know, if you want to think you're the sexiest thing on the planet or the smartest person, don't ask, am I okay? Say, no, I'm great. Say it to yourself. That would be the second one. Because I've done this with so many people who come and go, I'm trying to make my mom like me. I'm trying to make my partner be nice. I'm trying to make my boss think I'm smart. No. Say it, say it, state it, affirm it, embody it, state it, affirm it, embody it. Because amazingly, it will start to come true. What what you have an emotional mass around will run you. 
And when you were thinking, oh, I'm not enough, it will pick it up when you think, no, I am. So the third thing would be join the I'm enough movement. You might notice I have these little bracelets. It's I'm enough, sorry, that slipped. There they mm. are. And they're mm. Write it on your mirror. Write it on your fridge. Write I'm it on your underwear. Join yeah. the I'm enough movement. You know, the common denominator of all of our issues comes from being I'm not enough. Whether you're an alcoholic or a shopaholic or a drug addict or a clothes or even a sexaholic, it all goes back to if I'm not enough, I need more. But if I am enough, I don't need more, but I can get more. But everything I have, everything I need, I have already. So my third bit of wisdom would be state you're enough every day. Don't try and make other people believe it. Believe it yourself. And that is absolutely life-changing. Beautiful. Three wisdoms, folks. You heard it. The amazing Marissa Peer. Uh, what's the best way people can just uh, find out about you and your work? I know you mentioned the website. Could you mention it again? And any yeah. resources people can connect so with? So if you want to get some free audios, go to marissapeer.com. If you want to learn how to train in RTT and do what I do as the best job in the world, go to rtt.com. We do online training. It's amazing. We're doing live training in LA and Australia and Canada this year. And if you want to join the I'm Enough movement, go to I'mEnough.com. So I'mEnough.com, MarissaBeer.com, RTT.com. And if you want to join my new program, Dietless Life, go to Dietless Life Information Group on Facebook. That group's completely free. And again, we give you a ton of stuff. Marissa, thank you so much. Folks, we're going to put all of Marissa's links in the show notes. Check out her website, her main website, marissapeer.com, and the rest will be in the show notes. So check it out. Remember, you are enough. Send me an email, coopblackson at coopblackson.com. I'd love to hear your key takeaways from today's episode. Share today's episode with everyone that you know. I think everyone needs to hear today and remember that they are enough. Marissa, thank you. Love now, everybody. See you soon. Thank you. Take care, darling. Lots of love. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.